from Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another special episode of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today we are welcoming back our returning guest co-host, Dana Gurrier. I sometimes joke that Dana knows everybody in the industry, and today is no exception because we are sitting down with someone very special who she has worked with, director Catherine Hardwick. Catherine, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) So we have this label stuck at home because obviously there's a pandemic going on, and we thought it was kind of waning for a little bit, and in the past couple weeks it has come back full force. So we like to start with a little check-in. How are you doing? Well, I'm trying to just stay as positive as possible, be creative. We're working on developing TV series, different shows. You know, I wrote a screenplay that I just sent out to people to read today, even. I've been doing paintings. So I'm just trying to think of everything that I can do. You're really making the most of your time. I was just thinking that she's doing what you're supposed to be doing. (laughs) Quarantine. Not like me. I'm like watching a bunch of content. I'm glad you're being more productive. Yeah. So, Catherine, let's jump in. We like to start at the beginning. You started actually as an architect. Is that true? Yes. I went to architecture school, University of Texas, UT, Hook'em Horns, and I loved it. I went when I was 17 and turned 18, did a five-year professional degree. I loved the whole structural visualization, all the planning, the problem solving and everything. And at the end of my senior presentation, I had kind of like dressed up like my building and I took off different layers to show the evolution of the design and had solar energy and this and that and dragon heads with water. And the teachers came up to me, the professors were like, uh, dude, you know, architecture does not encourage this kind of creativity. <laughs> People like their houses to look like their neighbor's houses for resale value. And you got to do city codes. So they said, you might try getting into a field that encourages more creativity. And I thought, hey, maybe the film business does, but I didn't know about sequels or IPs or anything at the time. I just thought maybe that'll be fun. So I came to Los Angeles. And then you went to UCLA. You studied animation also? Yeah, I studied animation because I thought, oh, that's just going to be free and I can just think of all kinds of crazy things. But I didn't really understand like the job structure that really to make an animated film, it would be almost like a big factory operation. You know, I don't think there were, well, there were no women directing those giant movies or anything like Mm -hmm. that. So I ended up, people said, hey, you're an architect. Why don't you production design the sets for my movies? And that was obviously a natural connection. I already knew how to draw and build and design architecture and paints and colors and everything. So I did love that. You know, that was really fun to be a production designer. And you designed some really cool movies, such as one of our favorites, Tank Girl. (laughs) That must have been so much fun. That was fun from start to finish. Awesome female director, Rachel Talley. She wanted it creative. The comic book's creative. I got to go out and pick out a tank, an army tank, and add a barbecue pit to it and an umbrella to it and paint it cool colors. I got to do airplanes, you know, futuristic stuff, build a house out in the middle of White Sands, New Mexico. I mean, just everything was just Just one thing was more fun than the other. You worked with some really amazing directors while you were production designing. Richard Linklater, David O. Russell, Cameron Crowe. Did you learn from them before you made the switch to directing? 
Oh, yeah. I was just like a sponge. In between every job, I would go and take workshops, seminars, write scripts, make short films, teach myself how to edit, whatever I could. And then everything I was learning about directing or acting, I took five years of acting classes because I knew I didn't know that much about acting. I wanted to be sure that I understood how hard it is to act, you know, and help create an environment on the set where the actors can feel good and safe, you know. So I did all these things and then I would be working with these radical directors. So I could see the things I learned in the classes and the workshop, I could see them putting them into practice like real time. And I could ask them questions and just learn what kind of techniques they did. Since my job as a production designer is a very key position on a film, you know, that is really the whole look of the movie. So I was kind of like firsthand on the team, you know, right there learning alongside real time with all these great directors and supporting them and helping them get their vision. Early on, did you ever feel intimidated by these fantastic experienced people and if you did how did you kind of like roll with it and still do your job as a woman in situations where you were surrounded by men? Well, I do a lot of homework. I do a lot of prep. And so since I was trained as an architect, that was a five-year professional degree, I knew that I didn't go into any meeting without having my act together, having my shit together. If I was doing Three Kings with David O. Russell and it was in Iraq, you know, okay, at that time wasn't very easy to find information and visuals of Iraq, but I would find an Iraqi immigrant and get their scrapbook and look at the background of their photos. I mean, I would always just do a lot of research, a lot of preparation so that I went in there and I wasn't intimidated. I find the work instills your confidence. I work the same way. I feel like I want to know everything or as much as I can to create this world. And then as a result, I walk onto set feeling as confident as I can and also free to make new choices if we got to change it up. Exactly on that subject. Can we take a tangent and I can say something about Dana? Absolutely. <laughs> because Dana plays in our new show for Quibi, she plays the science teacher. And so I already had somebody that I thought was going to get that job, honestly, before you came in because it was somebody's friend of a friend and they were part of the production. I'm like, whatever, you know, blah, blah, blah. Actually, it was about three people that I thought could have gotten the job before you. But Dana got it. Why? Because actually she had done a ton of research before you came in. You took what was in the story. You went on YouTube. You saw the videos. You knew all the details about, you know, the sound, the sonic sounds and everything. Yes, those sonic sounds. That's right. I watched so many YouTube videos on it. Oh, you were on it and you brought so much to it and you were so fun and you had ideas and this and that and all these kind of things that I was just like, how could I not hire her? She's so five steps ahead. She's going to elevate it. She's going to push this to the next level. So I'm sorry. A couple of my friends did not get the job. <laughs> that means so much to me. In fact, Jenny and I, we have a prep meeting before we do these interviews. And I literally just said to her, I got to tell you, Catherine's audition was one of my most fun, awesome auditions I've ever had. And I remember you and I just literally laughing. We just kept laughing at each other. It was the it was the most fun and it was wonderful to be on set with you and watch you work. I think the thing that I like to do in auditions, I like to see if the person is playful because honestly, a lot of times on the set, a disaster happens, which actually we had one there. Our actress had to go to the hospital or this or that. We've had on Twilight, the rainstorm. We couldn't film on the beach. You know, we got to hunt really quick and think of a new idea. So I like to be sure that the actor is not going to be too like fixated, like this is how I was planning to do it and is able to play. What if we get a better idea right there in the room and we just throw an idea out? Can you roll with it? 
you know? I think it's a fantastic way to work. Because you're talking about the audition room, how do you play with actors when they come in to audition? What's your auditioning style? I have multiple things that I do, but one thing, I try not to sit down so much or certainly not sit down with a desk between me and the person. A lot of times I will just jump up, you know, like, let me just get up on my, well, you see right now, I'm not sitting down. I do not do well sitting down. I like to be in like action mode, you know, so that's one thing. And, you know, if the person has anything cool, any sparks, the actor, that there's any chance that they could get that part or another part, then I want to, you know, try things with them, give them some ideas, see if they roll with it, see if they're a good improv or not. Not that everyone needs to be, but Dana is, for example. A lot of times I've done, you know, when it's chemistry reads, I've done it at my house, actually, or in in a more casual environment instead of like a white walled room you know it's just more relaxed for example when we did 13 casting or when we did twilight if there was like a bed scene then me and the camera person and the actress we'd go into the bedroom and do it there instead of awkwardly you know on a chair and we would just try to get the physical chemistry to work or we would run outside to the beach and you know live in venice and do a running scene out there so it's just like can we play can we find a way to make real behavior and chemistry and fun, you know. So you brought up 13. You co-wrote that with Nikki Reed based on her own experiences. You basically were going to help her channel her energy into something. She was going through a really tough time. She was 13 years old, had a lot of like toxic craziness going on at school and everything and just kind of messed up or confused and everything was hitting her because unlike most people at 13, she suddenly like looked very mature and very beautiful and perfect. So all the guys were hitting on her and everybody. So everybody has different problems at 13. That was her problem. (laughs) Certainly not mine, but, but she hated her mom. She hated her dad. She hated everybody, but I wasn't in her family, but I was a friend of the family. So she didn't hate me as much. So I thought, well, maybe I can sort of be a therapist because none of us had money to pay like 250 an hour for therapy or however much they cost. Anyway, nobody had that kind of money and she really needed help. So I thought, well, maybe we can write something. Or first I thought I can teach her to surf or to draw or go to museums, things that I like to do. But she said, yeah, I don't really like to do those things. <laughs> That's not my thing. I want to act. And I thought, oh my God, she's waking up at 5.30 every morning to do two hours of hair and makeup before she goes to middle school. That's what she was doing. And I thought if she wants to act, it's going to be worse because she's going to be more concerned about her physicality and all this. So I thought, okay, but you're not going to tell somebody, no, you shouldn't be an actor. Let's embrace it and let's go to acting classes and let's read Uta Hagen. So me and this 13-year-old were doing all this stuff. Then I realized most of the acting classes would be way too advanced. They would be about affairs or, you know, sexual scenes. This is a 13-year-old. So I thought, well, let's write our own movie that would be more age appropriate or whatever. And I thought it was going to be a teen comedy. Okay. (laughs) But it's got to be grounded. It's got to be based on real stuff that's really going on in your life. And I went and taught in the school, you know, a little bit, did some classes, saw how kids were acting in the school, volunteer stuff. And then the more real it got, we're like, let's just do it about the real stuff. Let's not try to make up stuff. The real life that she's going through is so intense. And that's when it kind of became came 13. Let me ask you something that's a a little tricky of a topic. Evan Rachel Wood was recently in an HBO show that's called Showbiz Kids. She's talking about 13 and she says you have to be sexual and not sexual. 
you have to push the boundaries and not push the boundaries. And I thought that was so interesting. How did you guys on that set, how did you spearhead them feeling safe at 13 years old with these sort of dynamic scenes in the exploration of sexuality? And that was definitely really tricky because that's kind of what the movie was about. But Evan and Nikki were still living through it every minute. I mean, that was their life too. And so of course we had the child welfare worker on set and their parent, you know, one parent from each kid was always there because they had both just turned 14. So we had that. But beyond that, we had discussions. We had rehearsals where I talked to them. What do you guys feel comfortable with? How would you act in this space? And then there are guidelines that we couldn't go beyond for obvious reasons a certain point. I mean, there's even a funny thing. I've always left this. When we had the scene where they go over to the neighbor's house and they kind of try to like seduce the neighbor and smoke pot with him. And we were told by the welfare worker that they couldn't get anywhere within three inches of his nipples. They couldn't touch anywhere. So we had the nipple zone, right? And the welfare worker is looking on a little monitor, like hiding behind the couch in the scene because it's 360 shot. It's all one shot. Oh, we do two and a half minutes, one shot. We never cut. And at one point she like yells out, stop nipple violation. (laughs) (laughs) Not the girls. Somebody got with the three-inch zone, you know, and I'm like, oh my God. So we had the rules, but we still had to make it feel natural. And that was fascinating, you know, just to try to help people feel comfortable and be able to do it. The two girls had to kiss each other. They each had to kiss boys. You know, the girls, the actresses got to choose who the boys they were going to kiss. So nice of you. Nikki <laughs> chose one of her real boyfriends. That's who you see her kiss. And then Evan, I brought like three choices in. <laughs> she got to pick. <laughs> wow. Give the power to the ladies. <laughs> yeah. you know, that's what I'm talking about. I feel like nipple violation should be something we yell at folks that are not observing six feet. <laughs> <laughs> yell at them. Nipple violation! That'll really get them to listen. That's get them to listen. <laughs> So it looks like once you started directing with 13, you never went back to production design. Is that correct? Right, right. Was that the plan? Uh, Well, I didn't have so much of a plan. I love production design. Love it. I still love drawing and everything. But I was ready, I think, to tell my own stories. I'd already done quite a few movies, like 20 movies or something. I'd already been an architect, animator, (laughs) production designer. Okay, moving on. (laughs) What's next? (laughs) And after 13 came Lords of Dogtown, which I love that movie. For one thing, the fact that it is technically a perceived male subject and directed by a woman, I think is the coolest thing. And you did such a great job with it. It's so fun. To me, it's like the summer that you wish you had, you know, I wish I was part of that gang. You know? And it's funny because the male aspect of it, like I felt 13 was girls that had all this energy and they channeled it maybe in not so positive ways, mm-hmm. but the boys in Lords of Dogtown had all this energy and they channeled it in actually very positive ways of creating basically a whole new sport that spawned many other sports. They took cracked up concrete and empty pools and came up with some 
something amazing. Yeah. You know, I live in Dogtown and, you know, I surf and everything. So for me, I was just loving that world. And my first acting class, Stacy Peralta was in that class with me. And I saw him putting stickers on his skateboard. So I'd known Stacy, who's actually the writer of the movie. Mm-hmm. I've known him since I first moved to LA. And I knew the skateboard world. I did another skateboard movie as a production designer. And I just love that energy of these kids that just had so much energy and you have to put it somewhere. They might have a very messed up family life or whatever, but this is a way they can channel it. They can crash into the ground. So I love that idea. In in a way, it's like 13, but with guys. But then I did add in the girls. (laughs) Including Nikki Reed. Nikki Reed's character was Tony Alva's sister. You know, her brother was part of it and she had kind of hung out and dated two of the guys. So I'm like, okay, I need this character in there. Let me have her in the story. Do you have that preference to work with younger actors? Because it, it, it seems like there's a through line between Twilight and Lords of Dogtown and 13. There's young, bright stars that you've kind of given them their start. Do you have a love of working with young people generally? I do love it because there is, you know, this kind of fresh fearlessness, try things, you know, that fun of discovering somebody too or helping them kind of discover themselves. But I also really like working with other actors too. I mean, the pleasure with Emily Mortimer, Don Cheadle, that was just an absolute joy too. I I worked with Drew Barrymore and Tony Collette on a movie and Jackie Bissett, and that was totally fun too. So I'm not going to discriminate. And in Lords of Dogtown, you got to work with Heath Ledger. The scene toward the end where he starts singing Maggie May has always been my favorite scene he has ever done. That's my favorite scene too, you know, for Heath. Anytime I think of Heath, of course, I think of that scene. And, you know, Heath was a person that was just super creative. I mean, his process was his own. He would have moments where he would be like on many projects where he would commit to it and then decide, I can't do this. Like he had that moment in the prep of this movie, but the producer didn't tell me. So one day he came over to my house for a personally goes, hey man, I'm sorry about all that shit. I'm here now. I'm with the program. He had kind of dropped out and got talked back into. But to me, he felt like the way he found each character would be with his voice. Because, you know, his voice sounds different in each role. Mm-hmm. His body language was very different in every role. Like you see him in our movie, Lords of Dogtown. He had teeth made to match the real character's teeth. So that Matt helped him feel like that character, like Skip. And his body language is very surfer, skater. He surfed quite a bit to get back into the mode. And then you see him six days after he left our set and wrapped our movie, he did Brokeback Mountain. Six days later, he has a completely different voice. You would be convinced that that man lived on that mountain, (laughs) lived on a horse, had ridden a horse his whole life. Or if he's an actor, I would have thought he went up there for six months to prepare. But I happen to know it was like six days later. But he just gets it in his body and in his voice. It was just amazing. And then he'd be so creative, you did not know what he was going to do. Sometimes very dangerous. (laughs) I'm going to fast forward slightly to Twilight. You basically shot it like an indie film. The studio didn't believe in it. You turned it into a massive hit, and it has become this staple in young adult culture, almost. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think the studio believed in it enough to make it. That's pretty cool. But they also were nervous. Even the weekend before it opened, like on Thursday, they said, well, maybe it's going to open 
maybe if we're lucky, $30 million. Well, it opened to $69 million opening weekend. And they said, but that's probably everybody that wanted to see it saw it opening weekend. That's all it's going to make. Cut to $400 million it made. Cut to everyone after that making more and more and more. So, you know, nobody quite knew what it could be. And all studios turned it down, which I think we went to a gender thing. That's probably the only reason I got hired, because if they thought it was going to be a blockbuster, they would have hired a man that had directed blockbusters before. But people didn't think it was going to do that well. I came in with you know some cool ideas for it, and they went with it. But then speaking of the men directing, you then turned down the second one, and you've said then you watched them hire man after man for the subsequent films. Well, that was interesting because... The the book was written by a woman, the screenplay written by a woman, first one's directed by a woman, the star is a woman. But after me, all four directors were men. And then the same studio that had two other kind of piggyback projects to that, Hunger Games got greenlit because Twilight did so well. Divergent got greenlit because Twilight did so well. Those were all male directors too. So you suddenly have a whole big chunk of male directors that were able to say they had all these huge blockbusters and that makes them have an easier time to get their next shop and their next shop and their next shop perpetuating the system. It was started by you. Yeah. So. the fire. That genre and that whole scope of the sequels, like it began with Twilight. It's one of my favorites. Everybody feels like they're a Bella and they have a Jacob or an Edward to choose from. And you kick that off. I want to just throw some respect and a shout out to you because it started with you, ma'am. But I wish other women had gotten to direct some of those other. Now, of course, we've got, you know, Patty Jenkins and, you know, obviously Gina Prince Lifewood, you know, other people are getting some opportunities, but it has been a long time coming. <laughs> We're glad it's coming though. Let's be stay positive. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Has your approach to booking more films and getting more work, is it keep your head down and do the work or have you found that you have to be really loud in order to kind of beat out the men? Well, I think my normal approach is try to work on projects that I feel something for them, you know, that I really do connect with. And that already limits some of the things that other men or other people might want to do because I'm not interested in every kind of project. So I think that I still go in and try to put as much care, love into the presentation or my ideas. And I think of it that way more than I don't know what else I would do except for just do it the way I do it. And what you do often in, in many of your films does include action, which, again, is really cool to see from a female director. I'd love to hear about your approach to action sequences and how you find your creative shots. I love action. <laughs> and it is one of my favorite things. Action related to character. What will a character do? What action will a character take instead of just thinking about it, talking about it? I mean, even in Twilight, a lot of the action was kind of off camera, like the whole ballet fight sequence wasn't in the book. It was kind of talked about. I'm like, I want to see that. I want to know how a vampire would fight. And so we had Andy Chang, who was our awesome stunt coordinator slash second unit director. He and I would just like act out all the things. What would a vampire do? We'd be fighting. We'd be, he'd be like, and grab me from him. I love all that. And how are we going to bring this to life? What could a vampire really do? Also in Twilight, you know, there's kind of an action sequence where they go flying through the treetops. Well, that's not in the books at all, but that feeling is in the books. In my mind, I just thought, what would feel like the 
exhilaration of being with the person you love and this person has all these powers, what would be something really freaking cool that you could do? So that was a whole sequence just made up for that, you know? And I remember drawing little drawings. I've got all the little sketches of like stick figure trees and what if they fly here, fly here? Now, I've never designed a treetop sequence, but you just have to, as a director, think, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to come up with a cool idea. Yes, my department heads will help it and make it get better and better, but I've got to start somewhere. So mm. I'll draw my stick figures or I'll take photos of something neat or I'll act something out. Then somebody else can build and build and build. Coming from the architect background and the production design background, do you find that your first approach to the story starts with visuals and then you build from there? Well, probably I first start with the feeling of what this character is going through. You know, what would I feel like? I'd put myself, what would I feel like if I did that? I, I did the movie with Gina Rodriguez called Miss Bala. Mm -hmm. You know, what if I was in that nightclub when gunfire broke out? What if my best friend did get kidnapped? How would I go help find her? You know, what if somebody put me in that situation? What clever things could I think of? So I think that's what... I'm always trying to do like method directing. How would I get out of this situation? What could you do? And then of course the visuals, that just kind of comes naturally to me and can't help that. Uh, as I just read one word, I'm like, oh, that would be cool. Let's do that. Yeah, let me build that. And there were incredible action sequences in Ms. Bala. Like, I can't imagine the training that Gina Rodriguez had to go through, as well as Ishmael Cruz, Cordova. Oh my God, he's so awesome, yeah. His energy was just, like, incredible. Was it totally fun to work with him? He is a beautiful human being inside and out. And he's just hardworking, cool, funny. I mean, every, I could not say anything, but just like awesomeness. He's so fun. And Gina Rodriguez and Ismael, I mean, they were already pretty damn good shape. I mean, Gina boxes with her dad. Yeah. They were already quite physical. I mean, we'd be shooting all day and she at lunch, like it's 112 degrees. And I see her sparring at lunch. I'm like, uh, aren't you tired? <laughs> nope. <laughs> a moment of your time a new podcast from kurt Co media currently 21 years old and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. It's going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the one The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcocom slash a moment of your time. I do want to jump over to Don't Look Deeper, which is your Quibi show that it's actually launching its first episode today, the day of our release of this episode. It is a 14-part series, and it is fascinating. So it's described as kind of a Black Mirror-esque type story, and I'd love to hear how you got involved in that. 
Well, Jeff Lieber and Charlie Don have written it actually in chapters, like you see it presented. So it wasn't like a feature film that was kind of cut up later on. It was written for short form content, which actually relates a lot to the story because you can tell some of the story in a nonlinear way because we're dealing a lot with memory and erasing memory and all kinds of things. So it really works well in that short form content. And I started reading it and I'm like, oh my God, I was just like drawn in like instantly. Because of course, I love a story about, as we've talked about, coming of age or self-discovery. So this is a young woman that's trying to figure out, why do I feel different? Something feels off. There's a few things that just don't add up. And she starts to discover a whole history that she had no idea and trying to figure out who am I as a person and this whole line of self-discovery, which I thought was amazing. And then the fact that it's at 15 minutes in the future, really cool for world building and just adding neat little things to the world like that we wish are already here. All the solar panels on cars and solar balloons at the school and all the cars were electric in the movie and just different fun things like that. I love that you said it was written specifically in short form in chapters because it's serialized. Is it a different approach than if it were a feature, but also then because it's short form, it's the same length as a feature. So what was the difference there? I like the short form because it gave a chance to kind of restart or jumpstart or add a shot of adrenaline in each new episode. So there's 14 times that you want to have that adrenaline shot, poke people in, get them excited about it. And then there's 13 times that you want to leave them interested enough that they want to come back. So that's quite challenging storytelling-wise, which I loved it. That made it fun and it made the writing efficient. You could do non-linear openings of uh, episodes and that, that works with the memories. It all kind of worked together. The cast was incredibly talented, not to mention Dana Gurriers in it, which is awesome. But the cast was amazing including Don Cheadle, which I got a kick out of because both Dana and I went to CalArts and in your first episode, he's telling his daughter to go to CalArts, which Don Cheadle also went to. So way to rep our school. We had another school near. He goes, oh, no, no, it's going to be CalArts. <laughs> <laughs> I did not argue. Knowing that Quibi primarily streams on cell phones and tablets, did that change the way you approached it shot for shot wise? Well, now you can see it on your TV because I do have that app. So that's kind of fun because we did add a lot of detail in the frame. So now you can see it all. I had to figure out how is it going to be shot so that you can watch it vertically and horizontally. Big challenge, as you can imagine, as an art school and all that stuff, we draw things in a portrait you know, mode, but you usually have one portrait, one person in a portrait. You don't tell action sequence in portrait mode. You don't have two shots and stuff. So from all my art training, I'm like, oh my God, now I've got to figure out a way to make it compelling, you know, storytelling between multiple characters in this vertical format, which actually when you switch it to vertical, it is more intimate. You do kind of feel like you're almost like FaceTiming with that person. You get your choice. You can either see it in landscape or you can get the full environment and understand how the environment is affecting the character or you can be like up close. So when it turns to vertical, because I watched it in horizontal, is it basically showing the center of what the screen was in horizontal or does it move around? Basically recomposed it, recomposed the shots. Different shots are in there. Sometimes I I've even added like CGI elements to the top and bottom. I basically, almost like a painter, just composed it in a special way for vertical and a special way for horizontal. So you could watch it twice and get two completely different shows, essentially. Yes. <laughs> That's very cool. 
How did you work with Helena Howard? There's so much growth for her character over the entire season. How did you create that with her? Well, one thing about Helena, she had this beautiful movie at Sundance last year, which you can see online too, called Madeline's Madeline. And in that case, it was actually a similar case to like 13. The director found her, met her, thought she was so interesting, kind of wrote a script around her, you know, that was inspired by her life too. She's very present. She's very raw. She's very real in that movie and in our movie. And Helena is kind of the person that's almost impossible for her not to be real. She has to feel it. She has to be there. Like she came out early and she and I just kind of got along right away because I'm just like dive in full force. She's like dive in full force. We're going to go out. And we had certain prosthetic things. So we went out to a, a lab in the valley and we had to do like face mask and life cast of her. And she's just like, yeah. Yeah, let's do it. She's very creative. You know, her movements, she has different kinds of attitudes in the movie. Her movements have to be certain ways. She's a dancer, so she's kind of got that thing that Heath Ledger has where she absorbs it in her body. So on some levels, it's like helping her build out the character, like in the wardrobe sessions. That's a big deal for me. I like in costume sessions, we find our characters there a lot of times. Why is somebody wearing this? What, you know, do you have those earrings mean anything to you? Did your mom give them to you? I think, Dana, you had the necklace that was like a science totem or something. What was the necklace? It was directly related to science. I don't remember exactly what, but I remember when we were in our fitting, I remember distinctly wanting some very identifiable piece that was specific to Miss Hart. And I remember thinking she is science. She wants to be comfortable because she's really into what she's doing more than how she looks. But they found a perfect marriage of having her look beautiful, I believe, and then also have those little specific idiosyncrasies about mm-hmm. science. It was really fun, the the wardrobe fitting. I work the same way, though. It has to mean something. I can't just put on shoes because they're cute. I have to yeah. walk around them and feel like this yeah. is how my character would move, for sure. So that one way that as a director, if I can be around, which we had some of the wardrobe fittings in that same office building, if I can be around in those fittings, that's one moment where like Helen and I were able to kind of build her character and figure her out out what's her headspace and then we would take her out and then I'd say okay let's run outside see how it feels running take photos do silly things you know let's try different hair pieces and stuff because her character transforms her physical look and everything what was the audition process for Helena actually this one was kind of a leap of faith because I saw Madeline's Madeline I spoke to her director on that for a long time I spoke to her director on another show she did and then I spoke to her on the phone she was in New York and we were in LA so I think we Skyped back in the days of Skype. So, you know, we, we actually just developed our rapport over the phone and over Skype. And then I was just like, you know, she's so good in that. I'm just going for it. She's so perfect. And she was so enthusiastic. And then I had her fly out a little earlier, you know, to start doing some of the prosthetic stuff so that I could just at least hang out with her some before the moment where, oh, here she is. But it's all a little bit scary. You know, of course, Dawn and Emily did not audition. We know their body of work, which is amazing. But the other auditions were a lot of fun with a lot of the newer characters. And Helena came in, you know, to read with her love. We flew her out for that prosthetic and to read with her love interests just to get the chemistry going. So you've worked in several different genres. You have fantasy, action, thriller, comedy, drama, Is there one that guides you the most or is it that you just want to play everywhere because that's 
creativity? <laughs> well, I do think, you know, I don't see them too much in divisions like that. In some ways, I feel like if I feel something for these characters, then I want to go on that journey with them. In Lords of Dogtown, I felt a lot for these kids that they were just neglected, wrong side of the track kind of kids. Uh, nobody gave a shit about them, but they found their own creativity. And so I think I felt like Lords of Dogtown had a lot of heavy, intense moments, but it also had a lot of funny stuff because they're just naturally hilarious. Like to me, I liked bringing up both of those sides. Even I thought 13 has quite a few funny things. I mean, maybe it's only me, but crazy dialogue that Nikki and Evan have with each other, the way they talk was so fun. You've said you have like dozens more stories in your head and sometimes one gets picked by an investor and sometimes it doesn't. Do you have a story that you will never give up on until it's made? Well, I've got a few. I have actually just written a screenplay and in some ways some of my loves of other projects that I loved I never got to do I found some ways to pull some of those ideas into this screenplay. Things that I just thought that would be the most fun moment to see on film. Got it into this one. <laughs> So hopefully this new one will get made and it'll incorporate a lot of the things that I love about environment, about action, about brothers and sisters and love stories and all kinds. Of Going back to Twilight then, you've said that about Twilight where you snuck in things you loved into this story like architecture and Bella's a vegetarian and <laughs> it, it really had an effect on the audience who was in their developmental years when they saw it. Right, because Bella wasn't a vegetarian until I came on. I've been a vegetarian since I was 17. I'm like, she's going to be a vegetarian. And then instead of just a scene in a classroom, I said, let's go on a field trip to a green house. Let's show worms and composting and all that, which we have in the movie. You know, they just kind of plant that seed for people. And then good architecture. And it's a beautiful house where the Cullens live. You know, it's very elevated. And I found out that since then, I think you can go online and find like 200,000 models that architecture students around the world have, you know, modeled that building. And then they get pilgrimages. For example, I was there for our 10-year reunion visiting that Cullen house and 11 people I was up on the balcony. I looked down. I see 11 people there out on the street, nicely taking photos. I'm like, hey, where are you guys from? They're like, Guam. They were from Guam and they had come to see the house. <laughs> like, that's amazing. <laughs> the architecture in Don't Look Deeper is also stunning. Oh my God. Well, we have some classic architecture. We have two case study houses, you know, mid-century modern. One that was Saul Bass's house. Saul Bass is a famous graphic designer that's done title sequences for the most amazing movie. It was his personal house. We shot there for Aisha's house. We shot at Pasadena Art Center, which is... A like an award-winning building that's the black building you know that bridges across the thing Craig Elwood I believe so yeah we got some great architecture in the movie so looking back at 13 your first time directing knowing what you know now is there any advice you would give yourself then I think for our budget that was 1.5 million and for that sort of very gritty story, I think that we did a pretty good job of it because it's like war photography almost. I wanted it to be more like Scorsese's Mean Streets than any other teen comedy you'd ever seen. And I feel like our cinematographer, Elliot Davis, he achieved that. Kid yells at the mother and runs in the other room. We're just like following, you know, oh shit, what explosion is going to go next? And then I think that acting. I mean, I just look at what Holly Hunter, Evan Rachel Wood, Nikki Reed, and really the whole cast did. You know, somehow I had a wonderful crew and it 
it worked out pretty well. <laughs> Elliot Davis, he was your DP for four other projects beyond that. Oh, yeah. What is that relationship like? Well, he is very creative. He's very out of the box. I mean, on some of the movies, he had half his hair white and half turquoise. But, you know, he's just like, if you say, I want to do it a little different, I'll be like, let's go as far as we can. Push it. Something unique. You know, one time he came to the screening. One of the first screenings of 13, we had no money. I think we had it screened on this old tape. So it was sort of like a little bit out of focus and there were flares on it. There was a flaw in the tape. He goes, oh, I like what you're doing. It's kind of out there, Catherine. I'm like, oh no, that was a mistake. <laughs> Just call it art and move on. And you know, he's fearless. I mean, you see he's walking through that house chasing the actresses and you hear if you listen to the raw tape, you hear him bam, bam. He's like smashing into walls, banging his head, but it just keeps going. <laughs> what does it mean to you? to have made a career for yourself where you get to tell stories? Well, of course, it's like a privilege. You know, it's a delight. We have a lot of struggles getting something made, but when you actually get to make it and you're in the casting room and meeting people like Dana or you're you're in the wardrobe and getting to create something, you're on the set, you're in the editing room. Each of those parts of making a movie are just a delight because of the creative environment you're in with cinematographers, costume designers, actors, each person bringing something to it. It's like this super fun jam session, you know, that you hope like the, the scene that you love with Heath Ledger. I brought something to that scene. He brought something to it. When I saw him do the performance, I had notes and he had notes. And then it just kept getting better. We can break it down, all the little details that he added that, I added that. And that's just a dream when it all comes together. So yes, and the fact that people have been inspired to read by Twilight, great. People that didn't even read books. Now they've read or, you know, saw themselves in 13 or in Miss Bala. I love it when we can connect to people. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. You are an inspiration. <laughs> so good to see you. Yeah. So fun. Dana, as always, thank you for joining us. The show is Don't Look Deeper. You have to check it out. It is on Quibi. Catherine Hardwick, really, it's been awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Super fun. Hollywood Unscripted was created by Kurt Co. Media. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted and produced by me, Jenny Curtis, with guest co-host Dana Gurrier and guest Catherine Hardwick. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. And leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear from you. If you like what we're doing, let us know. If you don't, let us know what we could do better. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. Media.